0: Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing and advertising. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by GASP, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. We loitered off the pretentious, sorry, prestigious coast of Cannes this week to catch Rory Sutherland. Copywriter turned behavioural science expert and torchbearer, Rory is vice chairman of Ogilvy UK, where he's been causing creative mischief for over 20 years and where he founded Ogilvy's behavioural science practice. He has been president of the IPA, chair of the judges for the direct jury at Cannes and has entertained millions via his TED Talks, although he is probably most affectionately known to all of us at GASP as the grand conductor of the amazing Nudge Stock Behavioural Science Festival. He writes regular columns for The Spectator and is the author of two books, The Wikiman and the recently published Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas Which Don't Make Sense. Rory says a lot of things, but amongst his unrivaled quotable canon is a flower is a weed with an advertising budget and his beautiful contextual observation of when you can't smoke. If you stand and stare out of the window on your own, you're an antisocial, friendless idiot. If you stand and stare out of the window on your own with a cigarette, you're a fucking philosopher. Anyone expecting a good chat with the successful Australian professional road bike racer, also named Rory Sutherland, should tune off now. As I say, finally, welcome to the show, Rory.
1: It's a great pleasure to be on. Thank you very much for inviting me. Right, quickfire questions. Mac or PC? Weird answer, Chromebook Pixel. <laughs> you you were expecting a weird answer, weren't you? And in terms of, in, in terms of laptops, I've got about five Chromebooks deliberately some being very cheap i.e you can use them in a pub or on a beach Uh, one the top of the range kind of google flagship model the chromebook pixel being insanely expensive but the magnificent simplicity of the idea is what appeals good there's always a point in every i think in every innovation cycle where uh, things get more and more complicated and at some point uh, you get into a kind of peacock's tail runaway problem where the real solution is to cut things back and make things simple again. And I think the Chromebook, um, we were, as WPP, we were hacked about four months ago. Of course, I was totally unaffected. You know, whole offices were closing down for three days and I was just going, I don't know what the problem is. So, hence Chromebook, every time. Okay, yeah. logic or magic? Magic, the whole book's about that. Which is not to say that there's not a hugely important role for logic in lots and lots of things. Simply this is a waiting. Magic's underrated. And if you don't believe in it, you'll never get to practice it. Agreed. Efficiency or effectiveness? Effectiveness has to be every time. Lots of areas, efficiency is a good proxy for effectiveness. In marketing, it emphatically is not. Well said. Coca-Cola or Red Bull? A uh, complicated one there. Um, they're completely different things. And therefore, I, I I would say there's a false dichotomy in your question. <laughs> because one one of them is a drink and the other one's a placebo. Uh, red or white or gin? Gin. Think fast or think slow? Think fast, actually. Um, and, and then think slow later. But don't neglect the uh, extraordinary wisdom which occasionally bubbles up from your... Uh, evolved instincts
0: and the last one Rory is a Patagonian toothfish or Chilean sea bass
1: Uh, it has to be Chilean sea bass although of course they're (laughs) completely identical yeah (laughs) very good Uh, so no, I mean interestingly that was one uh, along with the uh, the the Cornish sardine which used to be called a pilchard uh, rebranding in the world of fish is a very important uh, area of uh, study
0: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So Rory, what was your first ever job and what was your first proper job in this industry? Uh,
1: my first ever job, um, apart from a few things as a child, I suppose envelope stuffing for a nearby business was one. Um, my first sort of proper paid weekly job was a holiday job as a student, uh, which was driving a forklift truck at the Ribena factory in Culford, Gloucestershire. And uh, this was very seasonal employment. Uh, For about eight weeks uh, of the summer, enormous quantities of black currants, or fucking currants, as they were known in the factory, (laughs) uh, were delivered uh, from all over the UK and some parts of Europe and processed into Ribena. And my job was to drive a forklift truck uh, containing pallets of these things, uh, which was extraordinarily enjoyable, uh, I have to say, in, in most ways.
0: And and then, so how did you end up in this industry then? Because I know you you put that down in part to a the, the group hiring effect.
1: I mean, that's an interesting one. So I applied to a bunch of ad agencies. So first question is, I was doing classics at university and I'd always wanted to work in advertising, I think, since I was about 11 or 12 or possibly younger. And you've got to remember, when I was 11, that was 1976, 1976, 77. At that time... Uh, it was probably the height of CDP's utterly fantastic press advertising uh, in the Sunday Times colour supplement. The Sunday Times colour supplement had partly been created by Colock Dickinson Pierce, because an unusual facet of the British media environment was, whereas countries like France and Germany had lots and lots of weekly colour magazines, Perry Match, Point, for example, uh, VSD. Uh, and the German equivalents, Focus and um, uh, uh, Der Spiegel, okay? Hmm. Britain, with the exception of sort of political weeklies, which weren't then pictorial at all, like The Spectator or The New Statesman, and to some extent The Economist, Britain had very little in the way of color print, mass color print, um, outside the kind of fashion industry. And um, I'm fairly sure it was CDP who actually connived with the Sunday Times to produce a color supplement, which was a magazine given away free with a newspaper, so that they'd have a place to put really good color print advertising. And the ads were fabulous. My brother and I used to fight over the Sunday Times every week, largely a fight over who got to read the ads, which when you think about it, is an extraordinary thing, you know, actually fighting Mm. with your slightly elder brother in order to get hold (laughs) of the ads. But the best of particularly, and I think most of the best ads were CDP at the time, uh, the best of them were spectacular. So I'd always wanted to work in the industry, I think, partly because, let's be absolutely honest, okay, um, if you draw a Venn diagram which says uh, jobs that look pretty interesting and jobs which are tolerably lucrative, uh, there are quite a lot of jobs in both categories, but the overlap isn't that big. And advertising is undoubtedly one of the few industries which sits in the middle of the two. And so um, I had a brief period when I, I wanted to be a teacher. And then I actually taught and realized I had a kind of doing my one month teaching experience, um, which was my fourth year at university. I had a kind of panic attack because I realized, OK, if I do this, I'll have spent my entire life in educational establishments. I'll have gone sort of primary school, prep school, school, university, back to a school. And I realized doing this that this was crazy. And so I bottled it and applied to a lot of ad agencies. I had interviews with, I think, Saatchi's J. Walter Thompson, Ogilvy, I think, uh, first interviews. And then I had second interviews with J. Walter Thompson and Ogilvy and May the Direct, as it was then called, which was the direct marketing wing of Ogilvy. Um, then, actually, it hadn't even been taken over by WPP. This is how long ago it was, in 1988. And I got the job with Ogilvy Direct. And... I have to say, it was an extraordinary piece of good fortune um, that I I got that job. Because, of course, if you think about it, it was just before the internet kicks off. It's actually the perfect time to get clued up about direct marketing. And direct marketing fascinated me. I think it was exactly the right place for me to be. Because although I obviously very rapidly wanted to transition to the creative side, which was what fascinated me most. I'm also a bit of a nerd. So the measurability of direct marketing and the capacity to experiment really fascinated me. And it was there that I coined the phrase, you know, the, the thing that has no name, um, to I suppose describe what later became behavioural economics, because time and time again, uh, you saw enormous effects in direct response advertising which couldn't be attributed to anything which an economist would have thought important. You know, it wasn't attributable to price or how the product was described or the features of the product or the utility you derive from the product. It was instead something entirely different, which could be Mm. a complete game changer in changing people's behaviour yet which to an economist would have been seen as utterly irrelevant. And it always fascinated me, this, that there are these tiny facets which extraordinarily change people's uh, behavior, which in objective rational terms might seem to be completely irrelevant unless you dig a bit deeper. And so sure enough, I I got down to the last last day of uh, the second interview in 25 Soho Square Nightway House, at Ogilvy and May the Direct. Um and I was lucky there, by the way, not only in ending up in direct marketing, but because twenty five Soho Square, the direct wing of Ogilvy, happened at that time to be full of an extraordinary kind of ministry of all the talents. It was a really, really interesting place. There were only about, you know, 150 people there, but pretty much all of them were fascinating in one way or another. And you're absolutely right. I think I got the job basically because they had four jobs. And I think they decided fairly rapidly on three good candidates they wanted, quite rightly, because they were very, very good people. Uh, David Brown, uh, Gina Batty, and Paul Parton. Um, And I think I was probably taken on as the wild card. And it interested me that because it occurred to me that if they'd had four individual jobs and I'd applied to all four, I don't think I would have got any of them. But because they had four jobs which they're giving away collectively, the variance in their decision-making and their willingness to take a risk was probably commensurately a bit greater. And so I must have been taken on as the kind of let's have a punt on the weirdo school.
0: (laughs) And is that something you realised or at least thought of at the time? Or have you you, you come to realise that over over a few years? I I
1: think what you do if you want to understand marketing is you don't look for rules. You look for patterns, And the fascinating thing there was that repeatedly I noticed that when you give people more choices they can make, the variance of those choices go up. So in the days when everybody had one family car, they had one car, it was a saloon car, and it tended to be a Ford Cortina in my my childhood, back in the sort of 70s. And I noticed that when people have two cars or three cars, nobody has two Ford Cortinas, nobody has three Ford Cortinas. In fact, if they have two cars... They may not even have a saloon car at all. They may have a mini and, um, you know, some sort of uh, uh, SUV, for example. And it always occurred to me that the way in which we choose, if you, if you think about it, four people each choosing one car is totally different from uh, one person choosing four cars. And this very fundamental thing about markets, which is that they're not commutative, that one times four doesn't equal four times one is a really, really interesting little trick you can play just to help you become a little bit more creative with the way you look at markets. But I think I've been helped in that. I don't think I ever would have got into behavioral science if if I'd been in the standard ad land world. By being in direct marketing, A, you had the results, which showed what extraordinary effects could be obtained from almost butterfly details in creative execution or targeting. So, first of all, direct marketing by dint of having results. Secondly, it probably encouraged you, I think, to think about brands in a slightly different way. So that because, obviously, the only value of direct marketing, before the internet came in, every single addressable medium was much, much more expensive than a non-addressable medium in terms of the per eyeball cost. So the telephone, the post... Um, which were the two big ones, and of course, you know, were hugely expensive ways of reaching people. But it did um, it didn't mean you had to have a really, really good reason why it was worth reaching someone individually rather than collectively. Uh, that's the first point. And secondly, it encouraged you to think about markets slightly differently in terms of individuals over time rather than as a simultaneous mass audience. And so I think it gave you a slightly better sort of complex systems view of how markets worked than if you'd gone into mass advertising, where you tended to look at the market as an aggregate. So the 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 mental talent for disaggregation, I think, was usefully formed by a good fifteen years, twenty years working in direct marketing.
0: You mentioned something really interesting there, which was um, your inner nerd. I think you uh, defined it as was interested in direct. Response partly because you could test and measure so quickly and, and, and effectively. I rather mischievously asked you in the warm-up, efficiency or effectiveness. Do you think the, that need and, and um, ability to test and measure is a significant reason why the industry seems to be hoodwinked into thinking it's all about efficiency and not effectiveness?
1: Yeah, I've, I, I've come down on a very different journey here because obviously as a direct marketer, In a sense, um, you had to have very, very good reasons in the early days for doing direct marketing, because as I said, you know, if you think about it, the cost per thousand of a phone call um, was about $5,000, okay, if you actually did outbound telemarketing. If you use the post, the cost per thousand was about a thousand. Now, in something like, you know, press, it would have been perhaps 50, and on television, it would have been 20. So you had to have a very, very good justification for your direct marketing, not only because you could measure it, but because it was absolutely necessary to prove this was cost effective, because otherwise, why were you using these batshit expensive media at all? Okay. Um, <laughs> So um, I probably, I think it's fair to say, for 20 years or so, was overly preoccupied with efficiency. And there was always the fault, of course, that direct marketers, I think, can make, which is you're so obsessed with targeting, with avoiding wastage. Now, you can understand why you're obsessed with avoiding wastage because phoning someone up where, where it's irrelevant and you don't make a sale is both annoying and expensive. And, you know, uh, waste is is something massively to be l- eliminated in very expensive one-to-one media. The internet, of course, changes that because you have all the targetability of um, uh, of direct marketing with the relative low cost per eyeball of television. And that, of course, only kicked in in the sort of late, mid to late 90s. And what's interesting is that, in a sense, you could have gone two ways. You could have said, well, now the media aren't so expensive. We we don't need to be so paranoid about wastage. Or you could have had the question which is, no, it's all about efficiency and targeting. And the truth of the matter is that The healthy thing to do would be to consider both and to consider both with uh, what I would call a reasonable level of emphasis, which is there's a value to indiscriminate messaging of all kinds of value to being indiscriminate, one of which is you can't predict the world anyway. Okay, and so trying to narrow down who your target audience is uh, in advance to an extraordinarily high degree of, uh, of precision is at some level going to be a mug's game because you know i I've just bought some shoes online from Selfridges, okay they had no real way of predicting i was going I was suddenly in a shoe buying mode um uh, <laughs> it it and the information, however much data you have about my online behavior and about my life my demography um the urge to buy a pair of shoes is never going to be something which is entirely predictable, so a degree of indiscriminateness is is always necessary in advertising, I would argue but What's happened mm. is that I think marketers absolutely love the measurability. And it comes down exactly to that point about, um, it's not David Ogilvie, he, uh, it, another Scott said it first, but using statistics as a drunk uses a lamppost for support rather than illumination. And the real appeal <laughs> is that marketers always suffered this problem that they were viewed by the rest of their uh, colleagues as, uh, you know, irredeemably flaky. Um, with a bonkers vocabulary and with a kind of unbelievably fluffy and unquantifiable discipline and so I think a large part of this has been appealing to marketers not because it's ultimately valuable to the business they represent but because it helps them justify their job and defend their existence and I think it also leads sometimes to incrementalism, which is that uh, people, if you think about it, the best thing you can do in a, in a job, in many ways, is to improve everything by 5% every year. Now, the most valuable thing you can do, if you're not interested in keeping your job, but you're interested in being of true value to an employer, might be to fail for three years and produce a spectacular breakthrough on the fourth. And um, one of the things that bothers me is this, Okay. Very simply, what's happened is that the ver- there is a very, very valuable facet to measurement, okay, which is when you can measure, you can enjoy kind of Darwinian evolutionary effects where you do more of what works and less of what doesn't, okay? So that you know that is true by the way, uh, the most valuable thing about measurement is probably I think the negative, which is that when you can measure the efficacy of what you do, you stop doing the things that are totally pointless okay i'm not I'm not entirely sure, and I talk to mathematicians about this about what form of optimization you should be pursuing because you could argue that effectiveness is an optimization approach it's just a, you're optimizing a different thing than when you optimize efficiency. The second thing that strikes me as totally out of whack is the amount of effort put into optimizing the efficiency or even the effectiveness of targeting relative to the amount of effort that's put into trying to optimize the creative approach seems to be entirely out of balance. And that may simply be, I mean, the banal explanation for that is simply that it's very easy to produce a media targeting matrix, but much, much harder to produce a creative matrix. But most people who know this, including geeks who work for kind of Google, Facebook, and, uh, you know, Quantcast, et cetera, say the single thing that has the biggest effect is the creative approach. Now, the creative approach may not be entirely um, uh, unconnected from media, by the way um one creative approach that might work very well might be localization which is i mean to give a very naff example uh, thousands of people in kent rather than thousands of people and that's partly a media question and a data question and partly a creative question I, I i'm not i mean you know at some level who you talk to and what you say will never be um will always be inextricably connected at, you know at some level because the best creative approach um, if you want to sell a camera case, I'll give you an example. The best target market by miles would be people who've just bought the camera, okay? Um, and therefore, the creative message should reflect the fact that they've just bought the camera. So, you know, a, a, a lot of those, you know, a lot of those things, you can't separate media and creative anyway. Um, um, but it bothers me the extent to which there's this obsession with kind of building tech stacks for on the fly targeting optimization but no one's deploying the same creative experimental mindset to how you to what you say and how you say it mm-hmm. I, I mean i'm not entirely i'm not entirely sure it, i mean it could be simply because it's difficult uh, it could be basically because the media agencies don't hand over the problem to creative agencies. And the fact that most of the creative online isn't being produced by creative agencies at all, it's being farmed out by media agencies, which I think is a is a perfectly possible yeah. story, by the way. Yeah, I, I, think, you're, I think you're right. I, I mean, media agencies notice... Okay, we used to be called advertising agencies. Then they were split into media and creative for reasons I've never understood and make no sense to me whatsoever um I, it was it was a decision entirely predicated on financial grounds there's some reason for centralizing media buying but there's no reason to take planning out of the creative agency i would argue unless your purpose is to maximize your profit from media buying by making planners subordinate to buyers which is again possible okay
0: mm. is it also potentially a need to to formulate And to break those things down. uh,
1: You're right. It's a completely false dichotomy. The media creative argument is a completely false dichotomy. Um, And uh, so those things were separated. And one of the things I think that media agencies did very cleverly is they started calling the advertising agency the creative agency. Okay. Now, in the eyes of the creative agency, this caused agencies, being called creative if you work in a creative agency, causes you to roll on your back like a happy dog, and you feel as if you're being <laughs> tickled in your tummy. Of course, in the ears of the client, it implicitly meant these bunch of arty flakes who wouldn't know one end of a spreadsheet from another. And I think the media industry, the media part, particularly with people like Sorrel, who are much more comfortable with the uh, media side of the business and the creative side of the business what the media side of the business did is it got its revenge for 20 years of hurt um as part of the um at the full service agency where they were undoubtedly by the mm. way treated abominably i mean I, you know i was in direct marketing totally different you see uh, in direct mm-hmm. marketing uh you the creative a good creative team would respect the media people and accord them absolutely equal importance simply because of course in direct marketing um uh, you know, those were the people who actually made the whole thing work. If you if you didn't have a reasonable media idea, targeting idea, your ad wasn't going to work anyway. So um, uh, th- there was a very sensible and healthy parity, I think, in direct marketing agencies between what was called targeting and what was called creative. Uh, in the full service agency, I think it's fair to say the media people were uh, given sort of second class treatment, and they usually had the last three slides of the Of the pitch presentation and i think in a way they got their revenge for these 20 years of hurt by essentially um building a bypass to the creative agency pretty much you know so so you remember that line where where, um uh uh, um, you arrive at the bates motel and the bates motel is very quiet and the the line from norman bates is they moved the highway (laughs) okay i think that happened to creative agencies to an extent I think that, um, you know, we're in this sort of gothic building with our dead mouth, (laughs) (laughs) right? And um, the media agencies, by pretending the conversation was all about targeting effectiveness and optimization, essentially for all but big TV stuff, effectively move the highway. And I guess it's
0: an easier sell for that reason, Because it can be formulated.
1: And also, I suspect, if you're asking me to be really cynical, is that the media person knows pretty well that you can get a 5% improvement in things and knows how to do it. And the client is perfectly happy to go along with this. Because, again, it makes you look good. You know, any presentation where you said, this year we spent this much to acquire a customer, this year we spent a bit less, essentially is a job-retaining presentation.
0: So then talking about things being out of balance then, um, can you share your thoughts on how agencies currently make money versus how they should? Because obviously, historically, there was a plus margin applied to media. But are we too reliant on, on measuring time in as opposed to the value out of agencies?
1: Yeah, I mean, there were, there were advantages to um, commission. Which we lost sight of. Mm. Now, we also failed to take advantage of the great benefit of being paid by fees. The great benefit of being paid by fees is we were no longer limited to solving problems where the solution involved a significant amount of bought media. And I think the creative agencies could have reinvented themselves as, uh, to use a very naff phrase, which I would never use publicly, you know, uh, psychological problem solving, creative problem solving entities. Um, and we failed to do that because the muscle memory was so strong uh, agencies continued to assume that somehow if you solved a problem without bought media you were somehow cheating and i've Mm. never understood this because The first thing we should have said when we were paid by fee is, well, there's a lot of bad news. You never get a large check for not doing very much, for rerunning last year's advertising. Uh, Arguably, there isn't an incentive anymore for really creating really long-running campaigns on which brands are largely built, because it was the long-running campaign that was really lucrative as far as an agency um, went. So brand building and agency profitability were the incentives for both were fairly well aligned in in 1985. Now, once the internet came along, once direct marketing became more important, etc., I don't think that system was possible anymore. Uh, Once media independence came along, obviously, it was completely impossible. But nonetheless, there were virtues to it. The other virtue, of course, with payment uh, by commission, was your client would get you involved really, really early because it didn't cost them any extra to do so. I think now we might get involved now too late to be instrumental. Um, uh, I also think that it's a terrible incentive because the principal value we create has nothing to do with the number of hours spent. For example, um, uh, first of all, I think we could add much, much more value if we were involved earlier, because by the time, you know, if you've got a standard Problem in a business, by the time the kind of economists and rationalists have got involved, they've defined the problem in their own terms, and it's too late to look for psychological solutions to the same problem. I, it also means that consultants can essentially waltz in and get involved earlier because they've got the brilliant name of consultant, which gives you a license to effectively muscle into anything. Um, I think also the very fact that we call ourselves, you know, advertising, the advertising industry. Um, limits the number of clients we can work with to those who happen to have significant media budgets. Now, one of the great things about starting the behavioural science practice is we work with clients like local police forces. I mean, I don't, I don't mean super local. I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about you know Abergavenny police station, but I'm talking, I'm, you know, I'm talking <laughs> about police regions, for example. Now, those people are never going to be significant advertisers, but they have a whole host of psychological problems to be solved. Okay, and maybe the solution doesn't lie with bought media, but there are hundreds of other things you can do in terms of choice architecture, naming, etc, which are just as valuable now by calling yourself an ad an ad agency, essentially you're saying, don't bother you know by the time you've got five million quid to give to Rupert Murdoch, then we're interested in talking to you. yeah, that prevents us talking, for example, to really early stage tech companies. Because they think, well, there's no point in talking to an ad agency because I'll only have eight million pounds to spend on advertising when I'm already successful. But we could help them get successful in the in the prior three or four years. But nobody comes because, as I said, it's like being a general hospital, but you've got a sign above your door which says cosmetic surgery. You know, we've got a, <laughs> an essentially self limiting description of what we do, and what my book's very largely about to, not not to plug it, but just to make the point what my book's mm. very largely about is that the talent that you find in an ad agency, for example, which is a mixture of human insight and creative um, uh, 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 and, and creative hypothesization i'll call it that plus testing okay those talents. Those three talents, actually, have the potential to be deployed twenty times more widely than they are at, are at present. No one with a creative mindset has looked at the tax system for twenty years. No one with a creative mindset has looked at, for example, uh, you know how you price um, london uh, the London congestion charge. so all these things are done and decided by economists who have a woefully um, inadequate and uh, one-dimensional view of human motivation and so everything's designed with vastly less emotional power than it might have because the problem gets to the economist first or the lawyer first or the you know the engineer first before there's a kind of creative triage process where someone goes do we need to make these trains faster or could we just make it so that people prefer them for some other reason now, if you think about it, okay, basically advertising in Latin means to uh, uh, to draw someone's attention to something, okay? I think it's from animadvertere, uh, which means to, you know, direct the attention. One of the simplest lessons of psychology is we care about what we pay attention to. Therefore, if you want to get people to choose to go to Paris by train rather than by plane, you could do it two ways. You can either make the trains faster than the plane. Well, that might be impossible okay? Fundamentally, I think it's probably the fastest way to get to Paris now. It's borderline, but it's probably still to fly, London City to Paris, you know, etc. Or you could get people to focus more of their attention on the productivity of the journey and the comfort of the journey and the lack of the pain-in-the-ass business of going from check-in to security to the lounge, to the gate, to the plane, to, you know, to the passport, you know. So, um, I mean, you know, a a not irrelevant factor, by the way, is when you, you know, when you arrive in Paris off the Eurostar, you just walk into Paris. You don't have to queue at a passport thing, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, that never occurred to me until the 15th time I went on the Eurostar. The fact that when you get off the Eurostar, you just walk into the Gardinor and to a wonderful – welcoming committee of crackheads asleep in the in the entrance Um, but the fact that you just walk straight out rather than having to go through a whole process at the far end that distinction with air travel didn't really occur to me until i'd made the journey 15 times 20 times now what advertising can do is make that distinction more salient So that people care about it more, so that suddenly they're not thinking about what's the fastest way to get to Paris and they change their metrics and go, what's the way in which I can travel to Paris in which most of my time can be spent either working or enjoying myself and the least amount of time possible can be spent queuing? Once you've changed the question, you change the answer. And once you've changed the answer, you change the behavior. And once you change the behavior, Mm -hmm. actually, suddenly the engineering solution may be irrelevant. And it strikes me that this business of, first of all, assuming that what people care about has to be an objective measure like speed. No, wrong. Two, assuming that what people care about is somehow immutable. No, wrong. You can make people care about different things simply by making one thing more visible and the other thing less visible. If you think about how weird that is, okay, the fact that you get off the Eurostar in Paris, in Brussels, and you just saunter into the country of your arrival. Okay, uh, you arrive at Brussels Airport. Basically, you've got to schlep past fifteen Toblerone shops. Then you've got to collect your luggage from some weird place if you've got any luggage. Uh, the, you know, the fact that actually arrival takes half an hour when you fly and naught uh, plus a taxi possibly in the town, and the arrival takes naught minutes. Now, if you were thinking about journey time the plane wins every time if you're thinking about end-to-end journey time um uh it's borderline if you think about end-to-end productive time the train wins hands down so what you've got to do is not make the train faster you've got to change what people think about so that different things become salient and therefore different things become decisive yeah And, and, and by the way that's true of things like tax the fact is that the economic view that people, people care about objective things and that their preferences are stable and immutable, essentially is like having a law that says no imagination can be used in the solution of this problem. It's that bad. I mean, it really is that bad. And economics is a hideous... The, the creative opportunity cost which is imposed on society by listening to economists and taking them seriously and believing their model has anything really to contribute... Uh, is terrifying. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But, but by, the way, by the way, I don't think ad people... Seriously, anybody listening to this talk in, in an advertising agency, go and read a bit about economics, because it's not... I'm being a bit unfair. It's not totally useless. It's a very interesting way of looking at the world. Sometimes it's a useful way of looking at the world. But as a map of overall human behaviour... It's as I said. It's like the London Tube map. Okay. Yep, It's a map of the Tube. It's not a map of London. And economics is a map of a certain kind of imagined thing called utility. And in that respect, it's kind of useful. Where it, you know, but it's not a map. It's not a map of human behaviour. Yeah, it's one. It's one dimension in a way. Yeah, it's, it's completely. It's it's. A, there's a guy called Robert Zion who always said that um, uh, individual psychology is like social psychology with all the interesting le- metrics set to zero. All the interesting variables set to zero. <laughs> and in the same, same way, I'd say economics is like psychology with all but one of the measures set to zero. Uh, all, all but one of the variables, apart from utility, is kind of set to zero. On the fallacious idea that you have to optimize... I mean, this is a really interesting one, philosophically, okay? When people try and make marketing and advertising into a science, the attribute they borrow from science, i.e. physics, for example, is that there's one single right answer. Now, if there's one single right answer, you have to optimize one single thing. And the, the truth about psychology and marketing is there isn't one right answer to a question. There are multiple right answers, sometimes singly, sometimes in combination. And actually, the opposite of a right answer can be another right answer. And so the, the efforts to make marketing look scientific distort marketing and try and place it in a space with sciences with which it doesn't belong. So this this belongs with complexity theory with, you know, uh, uh, marketing problem solving is a science, but it's not that kind of science. I mean, you can, I think, accumulate wisdom. I think you can codify experience. You can codify various effects. Um, I don't think what you can ever do is reduce it to that kind of thing where you write down QED at the bottom. And so in its effort to become scientific, <laughs> marketing becomes less scientific, weirdly, because it's allying itself or, or trying to model itself on fields of scientific inquiry where it simply doesn't belong. In your Sweat the Small Stuff TED Talk, so we're going back
0: almost 10 years now, you plotted on the screen stuff that costs a lot of money against stuff that has a big effect. You equally appealed for a term for the empty grid, which at the time was stuff that has a big effect but doesn't cost a lot of money. Is the answer ultimately alchemy? And is this also the reason behind your
1: book's new title? Yeah, I suppose it is, actually. Funnily enough, that never occurred to me until you said it. Um, But the point is that alchemy and butterfly effects, this comes down to the fact that in a complex system, small things can have huge effects. If you model um, the science of marketing on physics, you will borrow from physics two things which don't belong in marketing, one of which is the idea that there's a single right answer and that uh, it's an optimization problem. Well, the second thing you'll probably borrow is the idea that it's an ef- that efficiency and effectiveness are the same thing. Efficiency and effectiveness are only the same thing when you can define an objective uh, in perfect terms. Now, because marketing is always going to be probabilistic to an extent, um, uh, then um, uh you there will always be a trade-off between short-term optimization and long-term optimization, where inefficiency in the short-term may be effectiveness in the longer term. So there'll always have to be some sort of trade-off made there. But the third thing you might borrow from physics is the mistaken, in this case, idea of proportionality. And the idea being that the scale of the effect is proportionate to the scale of the input. Now, in You know, in Newton's thermodynamics, yep, that's absolutely right. Okay. You know, in in, in very simple mechanical problems like, you know, um, uh, then generally speaking, the scale of the input, uh, actually, I, I think that would be under ergodic conditions, and I may be wrong here. You know, the scale of the input, there's no path dependency. The scale of the input determines the overall effect. Under non-ergodic conditions, and where there's path dependency, and where there are butterfly effects, that rule simply doesn't apply. Okay, so um, the the rule there that um, uh, you know, the, uh, what you can do is you can add a five-word sentence into a call center script and double your sales. Okay. now, the five word sentence doesn't contain words like and at half the price. It has no material effect on anything to do with the individual and the thing they're buying. In this case, by the way, it's simply saying if they've got a choice between buying A, B and C, you simply say most people tend to buy A or B. And the undecided, when they hear that simple fact, completely change their behavior from indecision to purchase. Okay. So the the really vital thing we we understand is we in we are not marketing can be two things it can be the least scientific part of business which is to some extent the the um uh, space it's occupied to date or it can be the only bit of business that understands uh complexity science. So in a weird kind of way what we have to do is stop saying it's not scientific we've got to say something slightly different which is it's a different kind of science altogether. To borrow from Red Rock, okay, uh, wh- whatever that cider was. Do you remember that?
0: No, I do it uh, like
1: To be honest, uh, sorry, it, it borrowed it borrowed a Leslie Nielsen thing where you say it's a different kind of cider altogether, um, mm. it, and I think the end line was Red Rock. It's not red, and there are no rocks in it. You know, kind of thing. <laughs> and of course, when you say it's a different kind of science altogether, everybody else says together it's a different kind of science. I'm sorry, yeah. rambling over what was. Uh, really rather good ad at the time um but um the interesting thing there is that once you understand that then and once you understand look 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 complexity sciences and complex systems there's a whole institute the santa fe institute in the new mexico deserts of new mexico dedicated to this point and the person who ended up there not a very nice man but a genius a guy called murray gelman um who was a nobel prize winning physicist who discovered quarks i think if i'm right to say um uh, he essentially i went to a talk given by him uh in santa fe and he said the very simple thing you've got to understand he said i'm a physicist a small earthworm okay a tiny sort of simple little worm-like thing is in physical terms more complex than the sun okay the sun is enormous okay you know there's a lot going on in the sun but you can model it mathematically in a fairly straightforward way Mm -hmm. once you add this dimension of complexity fundamentally it's a bit like water changing into ice or whatever the rules all change and the the simple fact we've got to recognize here is in attempting to make marketing into a physical science, we're making a mistake. If we try and make marketing the one, um, uh, what, what I might call, is the one representative of complex science and uh, really, really nuanced statistical thinking in business, we actually cease to become a kind of subordinate discipline and might become a dominant one. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example of this. And I don't know if this is right or not. Someone like Nassim Taleb might back me up on this. And I need, you know, this is one of the reasons, weirdly, I have to say, by the way, of the people in evolutionary psychology, in evolutionary biology, uh, behavioral economics, and um, general complexity thought. Weirdly, what I've found is that one, they've been extraordinarily welcoming. I'm just some ad guy who turns up asking dumb questions. (laughs) <laughs> but weirdly, they're quite interested in what we know and what we've experienced, because what we've learned is are very, very interesting examples of complexity. Because if you think about it, as I said, uh, you know, consumer capitalism is the kind of Galapagos Islands of understanding uh, human behaviour and complex behaviours. But what you know, he, he, here's a question where I'd argue about efficiency and effectiveness being dubious. Okay, which is that. If you had complete knowledge of what you wanted to happen and complete ability to predict the future, then efficiency and effectiveness could be pretty much the same thing. Here's another way of looking at marketing, which is that a large part of the success of anything... Okay, let's, let's, look, at it, let's look at it through a complex lens, okay? Large numbers of markets, and this is pure Ehrenberg-Bass, okay, seem to exhibit a winner-takes-all effect where the brand leader enjoys a double advantage in that more people buy it and the people who do buy it buy more often, okay? So there's a win-win, okay? It's not a simple linear thing. Uh, It's generally the case that the brand leader in any category uh, enjoys a significant uh, share advantage over the number two with all the advantages that typically entail. I think the internet makes that insanely exaggerated. Number two, in becoming brand leader, a significant element of luck is going to be involved. Okay? Now, it'd be fascinating to back investigate something like Harry Potter and the crock of Shite or whatever. I'm not a, I'm not a fan. <laughs> okay? Uh, to work out what the hell produced that phenomenon. Now... One hunch would be there's a huge amount of luck involved, which is if Harry Potter and the Croc of Shite had been published six months earlier. Right. It might have gone nowhere. We don't know. Okay. You know, in a parallel universe where, you know, it it had just been, I'm being unkind. It's a fantastic literary property. I I just tend to prefer my, you know, my my fiction to obey the, you know, uh, conventional laws of physics within reason. Um, The, um, now, if, if there's a heavy amount of luck, What you need to do is not maximize the efficiency of what you do. You need to maximize your chances of getting lucky. (laughs) Okay. And that involves a necessary level of wastage. Now, let me just give you two examples here, okay? So I've just published this book, Alchemy. Now, let's say I I, I sat down with all the people in, um, uh, in Penguin and a few people in Ogilvy and said, how do we promote this book? And we had a really, really big discussion about, you know, how how can we make this book more famous, okay, or more successful. And we narrowed in on five really critical people we had to influence, blah, 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 okay? Now, we might have done 10% better or 20% better with a high level of focus in terms of efficiency, in terms of just dedicating my time efficiently. However, probably 50% of the book sales so far are attributable to me appearing on the Chris Evans Breakfast Show while I was at Cannes, and also in the U.S., me appearing on the radio show of Glenn Beck, who's a kind of right-of-center, um, uh, not quite, he's not a shock jock, he's a highly you know, interesting man, but he's a right-wing American talk radio host in Dallas. Okay. Now, in our plan for where I needed to get the book published, Chris Evans and Glenn Beck would not have featured at all. No one would have said, okay, let's get this on the Chris Evans show. It so happened, I don't know how it happened, that by chance, some mate of Chris Evans said, you ought to read the book. And he got a copy of the book, and he really liked it and found it interesting. And then having met me the following day, Um, uh, he went back to the UK from Cannes and apparently 10 minutes of the show was dedicated to how much he'd enjoyed the book, okay? Now, in a world which is emphatically nonlinear, events like that in determining whether you're successful or not are just inordinately decisive. And the reason you should use mass media probably, to be honest, is not because of immediate measurable effects, it's because if you've got a if you've got a book and you want to advertise it, what's the single best thing that could probably happen? Oprah likes the book. Okay, and I'm not I'm not holding out any hope for that. To be honest, okay? <laughs> I And mean, I live in hope, right? But let's just say that. Um, how do you maximise your chances? Well, there are two ways of doing that. One of which is to going to Oprah and begging and being really, you know, etc. The other one is to be honest, you adopt a slightly indiscriminate approach and you hope. Now, to anybody who wants to look efficient, that my second approach of, uh, um, actually make as much noise as you possibly can and see what happens looks unbelievably unscientific and inefficient compared to the, the the what you might call the planned, measured, logical approach. But I would argue that, and indeed, by the way, if you fail, you will look much stupider having adopted that approach. Okay. On the other hand, your chances of success—and bear in mind, things fail that deserve to succeed. I mean, life isn't fair, okay? Luck plays an enormous part in your career, my career. We're all fucking—you know—we're all fucking lucky to a huge extent. I mean, you know, I mean, never mind the fact we got conceived in the first place, but I mean, a large part of success is actually driven by luck. Um, Hmm. If you think about it, okay, highly virtuous people or with with unique talents, Gates, jobs, etc. In order to be one of those people, you had to be born within a very, very narrow time frame. Gates, if you think about it, went to a school in Seattle where the school in, I think, the 1970s leased mainframe time from a nearby company, okay? Now, my school, fairly rich school, it first got a computer in about 1981, okay, which was... It cost the same price as a car. Uh, it would be about equivalent to a pocket calculator today and what it could do less, actually, far less capable. We thought that was unbelievably amazing in 1981, 82. Here was the school in Seattle leasing mainframe time in the 1970s. Right? Okay. Wow. Now, mm. you know, I mean, you know, Bill might have ended up as a fantastic, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, academic or he might have ended up, he, you know, he would have completed his degree at Harvard if he hadn't had that earlier computer time. Uh, You know, all sorts of different things would have happened. So luck is inordinately important. So asking the question, how can we maximize our chances of being lucky? Looks less scientific, but in in truth, it may be the the best approach um, to business in many ways. I mean, if you think about it, okay, let's look at B2B marketing. Probably the most value you get out of being a B2B brand OK, you can do all this measurement of when we advertise, to what extent does Salesforce conversion improve? But there are other questions which you'll never really be able to quantify, which is a really simple one, which is when the chief executive calls, do people call him back? Now, if you're the chief executive of Rolls-Royce or you're the chief executive of Unilever, OK, Pr- okay, not the president of the United States, maybe not the prime minister, but pretty much everybody of any importance is going to return your call. What's that worth? Well, really complicated because it all depends. It all depends on the opportunity mm. you gain or that you lose by dint of having or not having your call returned. And so one of the obs- I think one of the obsessions with efficiency is that, um, in a way, it's absolutely valid in a world which was completely predictable. I mean, I, I get annoyed by this because a, a few people at Ogilvy go, why are you speaking in an actuaries conference? I go, I don't know. I think, well, what do you mean? You should speak at marketing <laughs> conferences. I said, look, if you're going to speak at a marketing conference, there are tons of people from fucking ad agencies there, and I'll be talking to the same marketing audience, okay, um, w- which you know gets treated to bloody advertising conversations all the time. Now, I do speak at It would be really weird if I never spoke at advertising or marketing conferences, okay? I'm not that fucking weird. But at <laughs> the same time, um, when you give a talk, about one in four, go somewhere random, see what happens, because – we don't have enough knowledge of the world to say that the only people of any value, the very fact that the advertising industry, I think, targets itself entirely on marketers is exactly why it's about a tenth as big as it should be. I mean, Seriously, I go out and talk to an audience of actuaries, or I might talk to... Now, okay, there are a lot of people with a stack of money. Let's take um, private equity, say, or venture capital, okay? Now, my hunch is that these venture capital people have never seen a talk by an advertising person before. So they never thought of the world in this way. Now, they've got some money. Maybe one of the best things ad-in agencies could be doing now is going to venture capital firms and saying, let's, okay, we, A, maybe actually these guys should spend some money on advertising, which sometimes they should. Um, the reluctance of tech companies to spend on advertising is actually, um, I would say it's ideological. It's not actually empirical. Yeah, and part yeah. of it is because Google got really big without advertising. Uh, on the other hand, Google got a you know billions of dollars of free publicity in press coverage, as did Amazon, as does as does Apple. I mean, geez, look at look at what Apple gets in terms of free PR. That's largely because all journalists um are become tumescent at the sight of an Apple logo. Um, <laughs> but you know, if you contrast it with the amount of noise that happens when Samsung brings out the Galaxy S10. You know, a new iPhone yeah. gets literally, I mean, coverage that will cost you, yeah, a billion, I reckon, to buy if you're buying it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. TV programmers about people queuing outside the Apple store. I mean, it's like a marketer's fantasy, isn't it? What would you love to see on telly? Yeah. Pictures of queues of people outside my shop, please. Yep. Okay. We'll give you that. Okay. You know, now, you know, I mean, uh, so, so I, I, I mean, all I'm saying here is really that I, I, I want to make this into a science. It's just a different kind of science. And it's, by the way, it's a much blurrier science. It's a much more ambiguous science because, as I said, there's no single right answer. In fact, the answer may involve doing three things. The thing you may need to do may have no apparent connection at first glance to the thing that you're trying to solve. And there's huge degrees of obliquity there, okay? I often react in very strange ways to bits of information. So in the plastics debate, okay, someone came to me and said, we've developed a means of recycling waste, which recycles everything except um, plastics. And uh, I think it's except plastics. So you can put everything in your bin and it'll all get recycled, everything except the plastic bits. And and, uh, people said, well, that's terrible, isn't it? Because we need to recycle plastic. I said, well, look at it another way. It could be great news. They said, what the hell do you mean? I said, well, if the plastic containers are the last thing you have to deal with separately and you're rubbish, consumer pressure to get rid of plastic or consumer reluctance to buy plastic container things will massively increase. You know, if I buy something in glass, if I buy something in a tin, if I buy something in so and so, the whole thing is a circular economy. The plastic stuff I've got to put in a weird bag, uh, and and, and I and I can only get rid of it on alternate Tuesdays, I'm gonna I'm gonna want to buy the water in the tetra pack, not in the plastic bottle. Yeah. Now I may be wrong or right there. All I'm saying is that, you know, quite often um uh it pays to look at the world in a very oblique way. So, you know, there are two solutions, actually. You know, you make plastic recyclable or you make plastic really, really awkward to recycle. And both of those things, weirdly, (laughs) may have actually the same effect.
0: Yeah. And that's what's so interesting about our industry.
1: Weirdly, here's a book which you wouldn't expect me to recommend. It's called Complexity and the Art of Public Policy. It's a very nerdy book. Um, and But what's interesting about it is it effectively says that the false attempt to pretend something is physics uh, leads to an extraordinary amount of talent now, they mostly talk about people like poets rather than advertising guys. But I forgive them because they're academics. And if you if you're an academic and you claim to like advertising guys, it's like career suicide. But they nonetheless say that an extraordinary number of people with different mental mindsets is denied access or influence over the standard policy making compass because of this ludicrous pretense that problems are like physical problems with a single right answer which is provably demonstrably right. And uh, they simply aren't those kind of problems.
0: It takes a brave man to stop Rory when he's in full flow, but that's exactly what we've done. We're about halfway through our chat and there's simply too much great stuff to put into one episode. So this is going to be a very special extended call to action two-parter. We thought it best that we all take a breather, maybe have a wee or buy an over expensive tub of ice cream and even have another listen through to part one as there are an infinite amount of informative nuggets to be picked out. Be sure to keep your eyes glued and ears pinned to our usual channels as we will be releasing part two very soon, which if anything is bursting with even more classic Rory gold than part one. As ever, thank you for listening, and if you want to get in touch, you can email us at hello at calltoaction.co. I
1: can't get no call to action. I can't get no call to action. But I try, and I try, and I try,
0: and I try I can't get no call to action